0: To the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Hey, yo. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega here with episode 38 of the Mr. Sensational Geno Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Folks, I'm back. We were off yet again last week. Uh, I do try to come to you with these riveting episodes of the podcast on a weekly basis, but occasionally life gets in the way, events get in the way. Last week when I was just about ready to sit down and record, uh, word came down that the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial was about to be read. And uh, it just felt sort of awkward to be trying to uh, ham it up here on the mic um, while this momentous uh, historic uh, moment. Can you have a momentous moment? Or are all moments by definition momentous? Or you have momentum going into the moment, making it momentous? Who knows? In any case, it just felt sort of uh, strange to be... Doing the shtick here while some important uh, societal event was taking place. So I watched that whole gimmick instead. Uh, Coming to you a day late this week because uh, I had just personal life stuff get in the way yesterday when I had planned to record. Um, As you may know, if you have followed the show... We are in the process of selling our previous residence in Santa Rosa, California, and I had to deal with some stuff related to that yesterday. The ongoing saga of home sales, the ongoing saga of attempting to sell a house that was bought with the idea of never moving again, yet move we did, and now we're having to deal with selling it, which uh, I don't... Selling a house is, is just... It's a tedious, irritating event that hopefully a year from now I won't even remember happened, but in the meantime, it has been a huge... Time and psyche suck, um, but i 'm back recording gonna admit uh, struggling a little bit just a, just a little bit on the podcast performance front, in addition to all these obstacles i 've just been having some motivation problems with the podcast uh, What are the pitfalls of a podcast where we sensationalize the everyday and where an incredibly Ordinary average individual brings you unwanted takes, unneeded tales, and unnecessary musings on just a very boring life. Uh, The problem with all that is I do lead a very ordinary life, and at a certain point there's only so much I have to talk about, and I I, I feel like I am possibly running low on the uh, inspiration uh, meter, just as far as content to speak to you about. There's only only so much in the MSGV tank, and I feel like it's been uh, dipped into pretty well lately and is running pretty low. But we'll see. Just a momentary lull in action. Uh, seasons change. Uh, things ebb. Things flow. Um, as a matter of fact, I was kind of hitting a wall with this episode both last week when I sat down to record it, yesterday when I first started it, and yet again today when I was preparing to do it because I literally had no idea what I was going to talk about. I usually, in the 37 previous episodes of the show, I have come to the microphone with at least a thumbnail sketch of some basic topics. Uh, today, I had nothing. But... Uh, Mundane inspiration struck, I guess. I can can tell you a little tale of something that happened uh, earlier today. Earlier today, I was out and about driving around in Napa, California, and uh, felt struck by a sudden pang of hunger, and I was near a McDonald's restaurant, and as some of you may know, did an episode a while back about uh, McDonald's, and a follow-up episode, I think it was two separate episodes, another one where I... Ran through some of my uh, top favorite fast food franchises. They got zero feedback on that episode, so um, uh, I I enjoyed doing the run through. But hey, that was just me. Um, yeah, it was too separate because I got, did get a little bit of a little bit of feedback on the uh, McDonald's topic. But in any case, uh, some of you may know uh, that I hadn't eaten at McDonald's in in quite some time. Quite many years. And I recently revisited McDonald's and revisited it specifically for an order of Chicken McNuggets, which I enjoyed, um, and which, when this pang of hunger hit me today, uh, that's what I drove through there to order. So actually getting to the McDonald's parking lot, to the drive through uh, was a bit of an adventure because I ended up um, driving in the proximity of very Aggro individual, Um, a gentleman in a big jacked up monster truck, um, and he had uh, a bunch of bumper stickers uh, on his car. Bumper stickers are always kind of a red flag, regardless of um, the content, because they tend to be, particularly if they're presenting sort of uh, a person's sociological beliefs or political beliefs... Um, regardless of the specific content, they tend to be um, very extreme statements, very unhinged statements. Um, And so uh, you wonder about what kind of individual uh, feels so comfortable existing in the extremes that they want to broadcast it for the world to see. So this gentleman, um, this guy was uh, seemed very, um, communicating himself as a very paranoid, angry person. Uh, he had one sticker on his truck that was the um, like muzzle of a gun pointed at you, the viewer, and around it it said, uh, think twice because I won't. So it seemed to suggest this the individual felt that he was at any moment going to be in some imminent confrontation with someone that would involve him without thought, just like blowing their head off. Uh, these kind of guys, too, are um, always interesting to me because they seem to sort of fantasize about these confrontations that will lead to deadly violence but they always assume they're going to be the one coming out on top like how does he know the other other individual will think even less of twice and just like or, or have him even you know he's going to bring his uh, little stubby pistol the other guy's got a rocket launcher you know it's like it's so funny these guys how they in their in their fantasy it's a given given that they're the victor but I anyway mean, he had a few other belligerent uh, things like that where he was like fantasizing that someone was going to like break into his car break into his house and he was going to kill them um, but he was doing the gimmick of, like, just, you know, uh, we're, we're on a busy uh, two-lane street where the traffic's bunched up enough that you're not going to, like, be able to speed ahead anywhere. But he continues to kind of swerve around and pass me and swerve around past pass other people. And then we both end up at the same light together. Yet we, we both got to the same place in the same amount of time, yet only one of us was endangering the lives of others. Um, interesting. But anyway, we both uh, uh, pulled into mcdonald's parking lot but he drove to another establishment so that was the last i saw of my aggravated friend um then i hit the drive through and uh here's the thing about mcdonald's uh it's interesting you know i would have to say that for sure there are much higher quality fast food chains out there but mcdonald's is by far the most impressive just in its scope of operation and uh just how uh, exquisitely corporately dialed in everything is. Like, I was sit- sitting in this McDonald's drive thru, um, being funneled through, and there's all the video boards, and there's like background music playing. And I realized it felt like when you're waiting in line for a ride at Disneyland. Very similar, streamlined, just fantasy world experience. that is just, you're completely enveloped in that. McDonald's corporate branding worldview. So well, well done, McDonald's corporate folks on uh, uh, achieving what I imagine is their objective because why wouldn't it be? Um, my problem though is because I'm not a frequent McDonald's customer, it's very intimidating and disorienting when I arrived at the order board because I don't really know what I'm looking for. I don't really know what to order and I don't feel like they actually even show everything. Um, on the board. So I had to ask, you know, uh, what are the sizes of your nuggets? And so they told me, and, uh, I ordered a six piece and I ordered a small fry and I drove up to the first window and a very large, uh, elderly man wearing a tie dye mask, um, with his nose sticking out, took my money, very pleasant gentleman. Um, uh, the tie dye mask was interesting. Uh, then I move to the next window, Receive my food. The problem is I really should have aimed higher with my um, portions because uh, I oftentimes am now gun-shy about portions at fast food restaurants because I feel like oftentimes you'll order like a medium or something and it's like an extra, extra large. But McDonald's... McDonald's isn't flipping around when it comes to their smalls, because that small fry was just like this tiny little bag with like three fries in it, and then I had my six nuggets. And so I was left with a with a with a taste of McDonald's, a taste, but not any kind of ultimate McDonald's satisfaction. So I don't know, maybe I'll have to go back again. Two times, two times within like a six month span after not eating anything there other than coffee and maybe a hash brown here or there for years. Nothing against McDonald's, just it hadn't been in my repertoire. And, uh, folks, I think that's it for episode 38 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. I really, I, I got nothing. I don't know what else to, I could possibly talk about. The, the, the well has gone dry. So, with that, wait a minute. What? Oh! I forgot, what do we do when we've got nothing to talk about here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network? We talk about mortifying tales of Gino Vega's past. And that's what we're going to do today, folks. This is volume two of Mortifying Tales with Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. You may recall we had did a special Mortifying Tales episode some months back. But the time has come for another deep dive into my... Cringe inducing days of yore. And that's how we're going to close out the rest of today's episode. So, folks, allow me to take you back in time, back through the decades. We leave the 2020s, we melt back into the 2010s, into the zero zeros. The zero zeros are gone, and now the 90s pass us by, and we take it all the way back to the year. 1981. The place, Atascadero, California, a small central to almost northernish California town where a five year old Mr. Sensational Gino Vega lived with his mother, his father, his younger brother might have even been a baby at this time. I can't remember. He was either just about to be born or had just been born. So Young Gino Vega would spend a good deal of time playing with a guy named Cameron that lived across the street, and we would play with action figures, and we would play with many different kinds of action figures, but in 1981, the action figure that was king, the ah, action figure that may not have been the tallest in physical stature, but that stood taller over all the rest were Star Wars action figures. Kenner's Star Wars action figures. Now, I've admitted on this show before that Mr. Sensational Gino Vega is not a Star Wars guy. I, I, I don't harbor any ill will towards Star Wars. Star Wars just does nothing for me as an adult person, as a franchise. I don't particularly enjoy the movies. Uh, not my thing. Um, however, 1981, five-year-old... Mr. Sensational Gino Vega was a ginormous Star Wars guy by way of the action figures. And it's funny because uh, when I've tried to go back and rewatch the original films uh, in later years, I'm always like, God, why did I remember this being so much better than it was? And it's specifically because oftentimes what I'm remembering are the epic tales that I told myself using the action figures as conduits, not from actual Star Wars content, not from movies, not from television specials, what have you, just the, the what I was able to turn the action figures into in my mind, the narratives that, that I created and created with my friends with the figures, ultimately, I think were more compelling, at least to me, than uh, official Star Wars content. Uh, case in point, I was enthralled and enamored with all of the various bounty hunter action figures um, from the Star Wars line. But when you go back to watch actual Empire Strikes Back, those bounty hunters are on the screen for like two seconds. And I was like, why did I remember that these guys playing this pivotal role? Well, because they did play a pivotal role when I was playing with them. In any case, Cameron and I uh, would spend just afternoons playing with Star Wars, um, playing with other, uh, other toys as well. Um, You know, um, Masters of the Universe was, like, new on the scene right around that time. Um, We played with uh, um, the understated, underrated, yet phenomenal Fisher-Price Adventure People line. I remember, too, we spent a lot of time playing with uh, that gimmick. He had it. I didn't. Um, Crossbows and Catapults. I got to look that up because I remember that I was really into that, but I can't remember exactly what the specifics were. In any case... Yet, through all that, Star Wars action figures were the king. Star Wars action figures were were the yardstick by which everything else was measured. And uh, one day we were playing, and uh, I had a Star Wars action figure that he liked. He had a Star Wars action figure that I liked. And he suggested, hey, why don't we trade these? Um, And so I thought, that sounds like a great idea. And we did. So later on, I was back at my house and I was playing with the action figure that I'd gotten via trade from Cameron. And unfortunately, I cannot remember what the two figures in question were. But I remember my mom asking me, oh, where did you get that? And I told her, oh, remember, I've always had this. And for some reason in that split second, I thought that I did something wrong by trading a toy. And so I immediately went into, into this defensive posture where I, I kind of just like involuntarily lied about it. Absolutely no reason to do so, but I did so. And my mom was like, that's weird. I don't remember that. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I, we, we got this at the store. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, later on, it turned out that she was speaking to Cameron's mom. And Cameron's mom was like, oh, that's cool that the boys traded uh, toys. And so then my mom came back to me and was like, why did you lie to me about trading that toy? Which caused me to just be filled with, like, panic and uh, uh, just a fight-or-flight reaction and thought I'd done something horrible. And my mom did turn into this big deal, but she turned into a big deal because I had lied about it, where there was no real reason to lie in the first place, but I worried that it was somehow going to be a big deal. So I lied. So this is where, this is the kickoff. Kickoff of a heritage of... Mortification by Unnecessary Lie. That was the first one. Um, But it all got sorted out. Um, Time marched on. And a few years later, we arrived at the next significant mortification by lie incident. And... This one, I have just figured out from a little bit of online research, took place in the year 1985, still in the small, sleepy town of Atascadero, California. Um, and this one revolves around the television property Night Rider. Now, when Mr. Sensational Gino Vega was young, when he was, oh, eight or nine in 1985, he did not have the freest access To television programming So there were certain Television shows that were out there In the ether that were a big deal Pop culturally that Mr. Sensational Gino Vega himself Did not actually get to view Uh, But he would become Almost more obsessive About these shows due to not being able To view them Um, In the sense that uh, He would because he didn't have access to the content would have to make up the narrative in his own mind what was happening what these shows were about and he would uh, uh play act these shows and he would buy or uh, get his hands on action figures and merchandise from these shows and play out what he thought was happening uh A team was a show that I did this with quite a bit um I did finally eventually get to see A-Team, and I was actually ultimately disappointed by it when I did because I thought of – I've mentioned this on previous episodes of this show, but in my mind, A-Team was this grim, gritty, soldier-for-hire, mercenary show, and in reality, it was just kind of a comedy. Um, it seems to almost always be the case. I don't understand people in comedy. I mean, comedy's fine in its place, but I don't know why everything – I don't know. The world needs more gritty, violent Soldier of Fortune shows and less ha-ha, I think. But that's just me. What do I know? Anyway, another show that I was quite obsessive about without ever having actually seen it. And you know what? I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've seen a single episode, now that I think about it. Because it was a show that was really popular in its day, but hasn't received a lot of replay over the years, I don't think. And that is Knight Rider. Um, David Hasselhoff's... Uh, star vehicle Night Rider with the talking car kit, um, which I really don't know much about. I don't know the details. I don't know. I can't remember. And I don't know what he was supposed to be doing, why he had the car or what the premise of the show was other than this cool talking car, um, which I was aware of. Uh, so in 1985, a, uh, kid that I was friends with at school by the name of Brian Cable, um, and I give his full name because God only knows if he's still out there in the world. Um, uh, but I, he probably won't mind being mentioned here or he'll never know about it. Anyway, that cable, I, I, you know, I was eight or nine. So I associated his last name with cable television. So I always thought he was cool because he's somehow related to, t- to TV, right? So that, that, that's how the logic worked there. Anyway, he had much freer access to television And he was telling me all about how there had been some modifications to the Kit car in the upcoming season of Knight Rider. And not only were there some modifications happening, but there was actually a telephone number that you could call. And Kit himself, Kit himself, would answer the phone and run you through those modifications. And he told me what the phone number was, and I memorized it. So... Uh, Later that day when I got home, I called the phone number. And now let's take a moment. Let's take a very brief break. We can listen to both an advertisement for the number and we can listen to a call to the number itself. And then I'll come back and tell you the results of uh, how this uh, played out in the life of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega right here on the IC Robots Radio Network. Thinking about a new car? Then check out 1985's Car of the Year. This year, Kit has more amazing features and more incredible powers than ever. And September 30th, you can see them all. I can't wait. If you can't wait, call 1-900-210-KITT and find out more. Michael? Easy, buddy. Yet. And this season, Michael will be driving the hottest car ever seen on television. Me. I have new superpowers like 3D video screens and an audio synthesizer, plus a laser seat belt guaranteed to keep Michael in his place, special wheels that will help me drive anywhere, and a new laser shield system that even Michael's knack for trouble can't penetrate. And there's even more. So let's all be there for the special two-hour night Rider movie premiere on Sunday, September 30th. And thanks for calling. And so what you just heard was the television commercial for a one number promoting the upcoming season of the Knight Rider television show in 1985 and new features that were going to be added to the kit vehicle. And then you heard audio of the phone conversation itself that one would hear should one dial one 210 K-I-T-T, and that was precisely the telephone number that I memorized um, by way of one Brian Cable, and then got home to my parents' house. Uh, I think he had told me about it at school, or actually on the way home from school. I think his mom was maybe even giving me a ride home from school, and he told me in the car, because I remember sitting in a car and hearing about a phone number to hear features about a car. Um... Getting home to my parents' house, marching up to the beige rotary dial phone that we had, and dialing in 1-900-201-KITT, after which I was party to that kit phone message that you just heard, and I was blown away that I was able to call this phone number um, from the mundane uh, phone in my mundane family's mundane house. And hear from Kit. Is it itself? Himself? Was he? Was he gendered? Was he a gender? God only knows. But uh, heard from the vehicle itself, the the vehicle's mouth. Um, and I was so taken with this experience that after I hung up the phone, I picked up the phone again and dialed one nine hundred. 210 KITT, spoke with Kip once more, hung up the phone, picked it up again, dialed one 210 KITT, listened to the message, hung up the phone, picked up the phone again, dialed 1900 210 KITT, and on and on and on. I don't know how many times I called, but I called many times in a row. And uh, once I was done, moved on with my day. About a month later, I was. Uh, In the living room of my parents' house, probably playing with action figures, and I hear my mom gasp as she's opening the mail. She was uh, completely floored at a shocking bill, shocking telephone bill, charges on our telephone bill, endless calls to a 1-900 telephone number. Um, which humorously in retrospect, I looked back at this and this number was 50 cents a call. And I guess that's pretty steep 50 cents for like a two second gimmick, uh, a little communication there. Um, but even still, there's no way I racked up more than like, Oh God, you know, 20 bucks, which even in 85 wasn't like the end of the world. But my mom's reaction, it was if I had ruined our family's finances. And I remember I had felt at the time that there was something Too good to be true seeming about being able to call Kit so much and so easily. I knew there had to be a catch, and a catch there was. It cost money, and my mom now wanted to know why there were all these strange telephone charges costing our family extra money. She asked me if I knew anything about it, and I delved deep into my hardcore G roots and reminded myself that snitches get stitches, and I told her, I don't know what you're talking about. No, it wasn't really that defiant. I just, I freaked out and I told her I didn't know what she was talking about. I didn't have anything to do with it. So she's like, hmm, well, I guess maybe we'll have to ask you again later. And I think this was on a weekend day. Yeah, it was. Because I remember laying in my bed feeling miserable while my parents were out in the backyard pulling weeds. And I knew that I was going to eventually have to come clean, but I felt like my life was basically over, and that our family's financial future had been ruined, and it was all my fault, Um, I did eventually make the admission to my mother, um, and all was fine, eventually. Um, But really, I made the situation a hundred times worse and not just admitting it at the beginning, the, the, the lying made it even more mortifying, even more horrendous, even more torturous, uh, the, the buildup of having to actually go and admit my guilt. Um, so part of it is, is, is my problem from having that fight or flight lie instinct. But to be fair, my mom was a bit of an overreactor about these kind of things. So when I would hear this extreme reaction happening to her noticing the bill, it kind of freaked me out and putting to, put me into a headspace where I felt, childhood me felt, I had to alter reality, alter truth in order to survive. And so I tried and failed to uh, make that alteration happen. Um, and just felt mortified after the fact and, and and just built on that legacy of biting myself uh, with lies. Um, it's really funny when I was that age, I didn't realize that I, I would oftentimes come uh, up with in my mind ingenious uh solutions to get out of a fix but not realize that there's no way I was gonna it was actually gonna work I remember one time my uh parents would make this version of the dish chicken cacciatore and I I, I despised this dish as a child there was something about it I just you know when you're a kid people are always down on kids for not wanting to eat stuff but I swear when you're a kid like your palate is different. Things taste differently to you. Things taste very extreme. And, and I, I just don't think kids are meant to be eating a lot of adventurous wild foods. I mean, maybe some kids, but I just remember when I was a kid, cause I eat everything now. But when I was a kid, it was just certain things. It wasn't like I was even trying to be difficult, trying to be a jerk. It just certain things just didn't, you know, I couldn't deal, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, parents always like to get into a power struggle over food. So my parents tried to do kind of the cliche thing of like, well, you're not allowed to leave the table until you eat this meal. And I just remember sitting there looking at this miserable chicken cacciatore. And uh, at one point, I um, actually laid my head down on the table and took a nap. And I woke up and they still wouldn't let me leave the table. So I had the brilliant idea to just start uh, dumping the chicken on the floor. And uh, hey, my plate would be clear. And sure enough, they're like, oh, you ate it. Great, good job, buddy. You can go now. And about... Ten minutes later, I hear, Gino Vega! And uh, they had found all the chicken on the floor. And they're like, what did you think was going to happen to it? It was just going to sit there? I, I, I don't know. I thought it was gone. It was uh, out of... Where does food go? I don't know. Out of sight, out of mind. When you're six, when you're seven, who, Lord only knows. Um, similar mortifying tale from that same time period that I'll share quickly here. Um, when we moved into that house where this all took place in a Tascadero, this house, my parents' bedroom, the master bedroom... Was one of those gimmicks where it was a bedroom and they had an attached bathroom to their bedroom. My bedroom had my bedroom, and then I had an attached closet in the bedroom. This little little walk in closet. I thought, oh, that's cool. It's kind of like how my parents have that bathroom. I can just use this. So I went through a phase where I was uh, basically urinating in the closet because I thought it was a bathroom. Uh, I thought that was cool. I thought that's what people did. I'd never lived in such a place. I'd lived in a small apartment in San Francisco that didn't have walk-in closets, didn't have ensuite suite master bedroom bath situation. Uh, Yeah, I thought I was set. I thought I'm never going to have to walk down the hall to go to the bathroom again. I got the the closet right here. Uh, uh, The weird thing is, I don't remember anyone ever like figuring that out. So strange situation. Going to leave it in the past. That's the point of these mortifying tales. We share these uh, excruciating things. Although that one's not really excruciating. That one kind of cracks me up, to be totally honest. Um, But we share them. They go out to the ether. They're gone for good. I'm going to tell you one more um, uh, horrendous lie tale from when I was a little bit older. There's actually two more I can think of, but after all the talk of having nothing to talk about, we're right at the wire here. So I'm going to leave you with one more today. Um, When... Mr. Sensational Gino Vega was in sixth grade. Um, So I was 12. So I was like, I think it was like uh, 1988 or so. I was 12. I had gone to a school in Santa Rosa, California for fourth and fifth grade. And then we moved and I was going to a new school for sixth grade. I've talked about this on an old episode, uh, the failures in skateboarding episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. I think... Icy Robots posted as like a classic re-listen a while back on a week where I didn't do a new episode. Um, failures in skateboarding. I, so long story short, I moved from Bennett Valley School to Matanzas Elementary School. At Matanzas Elementary School, uh, late 80s skateboarding culture reigned supreme at Bennett Valley School in 1988. Um, that skateboarding culture was kind of unheard of. So it was a big culture change. I went from a place where it was considered cool to wear a TNC surf design shirt to a place where you would get ridiculed and your head flushed down the toilet for wearing one because you had to be wearing actual real cool dude skateboarding stuff like Tony Hawk shirts and, and Lucero uh, Schmidt stick shirts, so on and so forth. And so I, I may have told this tale on that previous episode. And if I did, I apologize, but I don't know how many people even would be familiar with the the original iteration of this podcast. So I'm gonna tell it again if if I am repeating myself. But um I had been a total loser at Benna Valley School, been uh, picked upon mercilessly, um, not for any, like, I, I came to the game late, like, a lot of the people that had gone to that school had been together since kindergarten, and I was, like, the newcomer. Um, so I think that singled me out. And then also folks at benevelli school were not, um, <laughs> they, they were like, you know, the, the, the gimmick that's out in the news right now, or I, I mean, I guess there's a few news cycles ago, but it was when like Asian people were getting shoved. And then there was like, stop, whatever, AI, CIP, whatever. There was some acronym. I think it was for like Asian slash Pacific Islanders stop hate against them. Well, um, in the mid eighties in Santa Rosa, the Asian Pacific Islander hate was in full effect. So that was a big, um, my Asian background was a big target for me at Bennett Valley school. I was often, uh, uh, you know, ching chong this and like the slant eyed thing. And like the, um, thing about like sitting on a fence and making a dollar out of 15 cents. People, they weren't feeling the Asian, uh, persuasion at Bennett Valley elementary school for whatever reason. Um, uh, but at Matanzas, uh, I was a loser there because I wasn't a cool dude skateboarder. Um, So I kind of tried to adopt some of the cool dude skateboard garb, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So I I was presenting a very poor iteration of it. But I got invited to a slumber party um, put on by a kid that I'd known from Bennett Valley School. So I went to that slumber party. It was my first time seeing all these kids since I'd left school. And so my sad attempt at being a cool dude skateboarder actually to them appeared to be an authentic iteration of a cool dude skateboarder. So they thought that Ching Chong Chinaman had gone off to Matanzas and suddenly now was a cool dude because he was a cool dude skateboarder. And I was like, whoa, they, they, it's working. They think that I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a cool dude skateboarder. A big catch here, I, don't e- I didn't even own a skateboard yet, I don't think, at this time. Or maybe if I did, I'd, re- I'd try to ride it like once. But um, so they were like, oh, dude, you're like a skater now. I've heard about this skateboarding stuff. Tell us more. So uh i i was in this uh unknown uh, to me at that time position of where like i had this this throng of of uh fellow kids sitting around the learning tree as i imparted the wisdom of the of the ways of the cool dude the ways of the cool dude riding a board with wheels uh, that does not get much cooler than a, than a wooden board with wheels um so i was telling them the the who the different pro skaters were that you should follow what the bands were uh, what cool dudes wore, what kind of haircuts cool dudes got as they rode on their board with wheels. And they're all, tell us more, tell us more. And it's like, often when I skate, I'll do a 386 inverted 2078 9 ollie off a 784 Tony Hawk lateral uh, escorial something flip 80 in a half pipe bowl. And they're like, oh, really? you do that? Oh, yeah, every day. And so I'm just telling them all this stuff. And uh, this is the morning after the slumber party, and we're all waiting for our parents to pick us up. And my mom comes to pick me up. And I I do want to make the caveat, I did not go into this situation wanting to dupe these people. I did not go into a situation wanting to con these people, but it kind of took on a life of its own because as I realized that they had this uh, false perception of me, it just got awkward. Like, I couldn't really be like, well, I'm really still just Ching Chong China, man. I'm just trying to be a cool dude. I, I, I just felt like I had to feel these things as if, you know, I, I felt I had to own the gimmick. I felt like I had to uh, own my role and, and, and give as good of an accounting, as good of a uh, performance to these other kids as I could possibly give. I wasn't trying to be a liar. I wasn't trying to be disingenuous, but I was. And I it just kept getting deeper and deeper as the minutes ticked on, waiting for our parents to pick us up. My mom finally comes to pick me up and she walks in. And uh, this... This is this is what makes it even worse than if it was just the kids. The mother of the person whose birthday party it was greeted my mom, and she was like, "Oh, your son uh, has been telling us all about skateboarding. It sounds like uh, you know he's really into it. That's great that he ha- he's like so passionate about this hobby." And my mom looks at me, looks at the kids, looks at the mom, and says, "He doesn't own a skateboard." Wah, 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 wah. And I just remember, like the the the, the, the shameful feeling of watching, not just the face of every one of those boys at the slumber party fall, but the mom even, the mom of the kid party was just being like, oh, <laughs> mortifying tales in the life of Mr. Sensational Gina Vega. The lesson, I guess. I guess I should just wear it all out of my sleeve. Just be be as honest as the day is long, even if we that veers into the the realm of TMI. And I feel like that's kind of where I am in my life for now. I don't hold back with you guys, do I? I tell you, I, I'm a street shooter. I tell it like it is. Uh, uh, something like that. So, uh, yeah. I I guess I have had to learn over the years, um, that it is always better to confront things head on, rather than try to defend yourself with a flight or fight mechanism. Of a fib. Of a lie. Because it never goes well. It just makes things worse. It makes things more mortifying. I hope your life isn't too mortifying right now. I hope things are treating you well out there. I will be back next week. Sorry if I sound like a little bit of a downer about uh, about the show and its future. I, I'm mostly working. Have hit a little bit of a creative wall. But um, that's just all part of the process. We will work through it together. Me and maybe Albert if he still listens to the show. And I see robots. <laughs> the, the the threes of ones. In any case, folks. Um, for the Mister Sensational Geno Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network, <laughs> blundering here on the on the outro. But what else is new? It's me, Mister Sensational Geno Vega. Signing off.